Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and informative. After everyone has had a chance to speak, there is a question and answer period. I end the session with a quick note of optimism from each speaker. In a few minutes, I will turn the call over to my co-host, Rick Banks, who is a professor of law at Stanford as well as the co-founder and faculty director at the Stanford Center for Racial Justice. The topic this week is the intersection of race and education and policing. I designed a What Happens Next survey for our audience related to these subjects, and I want to thank the 230 participants for completing the task. I think it is important to recognize that this audience is not representative of the nation. It is wider, more wealthy, with most of us in the top 1%, more liberal, and is universally college-educated with most having graduate degrees. Here's what I found surprising. Let's start with education. Only 10% of you expect an in-person instruction for public schools in the fall. 53% expect a hybrid model, and 37% expect an all-online program. Hardly anyone thought this would improve the quality of education. 77% of you expected there to be a significant or catastrophic decline in learning in the fall. 81% thought the online experience would increase inequality in education. About half of you expect parents to actively participate in homeschooling, to enhance their children's education, and over 60% expect families to form pods to supplement their child's education. Nearly everyone agreed that a parent would either have to work from home or give up employment to monitor the student child. Nearly two-thirds were more worried about socialization and isolation than the educational content. We have three speakers today to discuss education. Our first speaker is Paul LeBlanc, who is president of Southern New Hampshire University. Since 2003, under Paul's leadership, SNHU has grown from 2,800 students to over 135,000 learners and is the largest nonprofit provider of online higher education in the country. Paul will speak about how to leverage online education and to improve college instruction for all. Our second speaker is Jay Green. Jay is probably most well known as my high school debate partner at Nutra High School. Jay is also the head of the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. Jay will speak about families working together in pods to improve their children's education if schools go online in the fall. Our third and final speaker in the education installment is Linda Darling-Hammond. She is the current president of California State Board of Education and is an emeritus professor of education at Stanford. Linda will speak about race, equity, and education. Our second segment is on criminal justice reform and policing. Going back to our survey, I asked, what does defunding the police mean to you? Here's what you said. Two-thirds of you think it means cutting police budgets and changing the police mandate wave from social services. Around a third of you thought this would mean expanding the use of community-based policing to reduce crime. I was surprised that 90% of you do not expect criminal justice reform to result in shorter prison sentences or reductions in bail. I lifted a question from this week's Rasmussen survey. Here is the precise question that both Rasmussen and I asked you. There's a growing movement to defund police departments nationwide and channel that money into more social services. Do you favor or oppose reducing the police budget in the community where you live? In our survey, one-third of you wanted a police budget decrease, 
45% wanted no change, and 23% desired an increase in police budgets. Rasmussen's survey was slightly less enthusiastic about reducing police budgets, with their national survey at 23%, or 10% lower than our survey. Rasmussen found the views of minorities to be nearly identical on this question as whites. If police budgets are in fact reduced, our audience expects the crime will rise, there will be less policing in minority neighborhoods, and there will be less aggressive police tactics in minority neighborhoods with fewer arrests. I asked you what kind of criminal reform that you do want. Here's what you said. Half want more judicial discretion in sentencing and want to bring back the beat cop. Nearly two-thirds want more body cams, and 45% want more cameras on the streets to catch criminals. It seems transparency is important to reduce police violence, and at the same time, you want Big Brother to watch over all of us to reduce crime. I was surprised how few of you want to reduce prison sentencing for violent crimes. Just 2% of you want to decrease the current median sentence for murders from 13 years, and only 1% want to reduce the sentence for rape and sexual assault to below four years. This theme was the same for all the other violent crimes that I listed. Drug crimes are different. Two-thirds of you want to reduce the median 10-month sentence for drug possession, and 40% want to reduce the 17-month median sentence for drug trafficking. Eliminating cash bail is very unpopular, with the exception of prostitution. You blame the lack of prosecution on bad cops because of the blue wall of silence and strong police unions. Today we will hear from three different speakers on criminal justice. David Sklansky is a Stanford Law Professor and Co-Director of Stanford's Criminal Justice Center. David will discuss defunding the police and community-based policing. Judge Gary Feinerman is a federal district judge in the Northern District of Illinois and a frequent participant in my Chicago Book Club. Gary will speak about race and criminal justice in federal court. Craig Futterman is a law professor at the University of Chicago. He founded and has served as the director of the Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project of the Mandel Legal Aid Clinic since 2000. Craig will speak about race discrimination and police brutality. We've had over 1,100 new contacts added in the past couple of weeks. Please use the link that I sent you to automatically add your friends to the permanent list. And now, let's hear from Rick Banks. Go ahead, Rick. Thanks, Larry. Hi, everyone. My name is Rick Banks. I'm a law professor at Stanford University and the director of our recently established Stanford Center for Racial Justice. Uh, before we sit, get into this call, though, let me note that I'll return as two weeks as co-host uh, when we'll have a discussion I'm very excited about, which will focus on the intersection of Silicon Valley and racial justice. Specifically, the question uh, will be what role, if any, should Silicon Valley play in redressing racial injustice? But for today, I'm delighted to co-host this call with Larry and to have some of my people, if you will, be part of this stimulating and essential series of conversations. Today's presenters set a high bar. We should be clear, especially for those of you who might not know all of them, that there is no group better to hear from on the topics of policing and education than the speakers we've assembled. Our coupling of policing and education in this call is intentional. With respect to each, we confront what are potentially inflection points, the possibility that years from now we will look back and we will see this as a time when things changed forever, or perhaps a time when things should have changed but did not. We may see it as a time when things either got much better or much worse, as an opportunity that we embraced or one that we missed. 
Which future comes to pass depends in part on the decisions that we make. Decisions that we make collectively as a society and as citizens, these are decisions in which we all can play a role. That's the, my motivation for having this conversation, is so that we make the right decisions and make well-informed decisions, not only for ourselves, but for our children and our grandchildren. With that, uh, let the conversation begin. Larry, back to you. Okay, great. Our first speaker is Paul LeBlanc. I mentioned before that he is the president of Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, Paul will be discussing competency-based learning. Go ahead, Paul. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be with you all today. Um, when I'm asked to talk about higher education, I often ask, which one? Because there are multiple higher educations. And the one that this audience is most familiar with and the one that we most go to in our public discourse is the campus-based traditional model of, uh, of an undergraduate education. Um, and, and if I focus on that one for a moment before shifting my, my lens, I'll tell you that, that that form of higher education is largely failing students of color. Our black students in America are much, likely, much less likely to attend such institutions. When they do, when they, do they usually uh, enroll in a less selective institution. That has an impact of, uh, on their ROI of more than $2 million uh, in lifetime earnings. Uh, if students, uh, if black students have the same high school GPA as their white counterparts, they're much more likely to go to a two-year college or attend a for-profit. When they do, they'll take on more debt. They'll be much less likely to complete. And even when they complete a four-year degree, they're typically making $25,000 less in income on average after graduation. Ironically, if that student lives, if that student of color lives in a state with a very large black population, they're actually less likely to have access to selective public institutions in their own states. Um, if we layer in poverty, um, which does have some correlations to race in America, simply, it's better to be a dumb rich kid than a really smart poor kid. You have four times more likely uh, to earn a degree, um, even, even though the student of color has a higher GPA. In fact, in our lowest income quartile, only 11% of young people can expect to attain a college degree. However, what the pandemic has shown us is that campuses are places of refuge, even with all of the ways we could unpack their limitations. That is, a surprising number of students, percentage of students, uh, poor students and students of color, suffer housing insecurity, food insecurity, or live in unsafe environments. The other thing that the pandemic has shown a light on is the question of technology access. When in my own institution for our campus, our rather small campus of 4,000 students, we realized that many of our students of color were getting on between midnight and 4 a.m. because that was the only time that the family's one computer was available, and they often struggle with uh, connectivity issues. I want to shift my focus, however, to um, the other higher education that I spend a lot of time thinking about because the traditional residential college student is not the new American college student any longer. It's not the average. The average college student in America is a part-time student, often working. Um, they're often uh, enrolled in two-year school instead of a four-year school. In my online program, we have 30,000 students of color. That would dwarf the largest HBCU. Um, it's the largest population of students of color of any nonprofit institution in the country. But they're not that 17, 18, or 19-year-old you picture when you think about a campus. They're actually more likely to be a 29-year-old 86% of them are working full-time. 
most of them have families, so they're juggling family and work and now going to college. 18% of them, roughly 18% of them are veterans. And in this case, online education is a platform delivering, is a platform for delivering a more equitable educational opportunity. And why is that? Because at the heart of it, it gives them flexibility. And time is the enemy of the poor. Everything takes longer if you're poor. It also means that they're in a four-year degree program, not a two-year degree program. And geography becomes irrelevant. And geography is critical to underserved populations and underserved communities. That's why so often they are attending for-profit institutions who are willing to be in those spaces. As we look forward uh, to the, we hope, reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, um, I, my industry is not one that gets disrupted overnight like music or journalism. We're a regulated industry, more like healthcare with a third-party payer, the federal government. I look for three things that we could do to bring more equity into higher education to better serve our students of color. One is that there is a very well-known package of reforms that we could put into place tomorrow for those of you listening who may sit on a board, these are the questions you could ask. And it is, why, are we ha why do we have standardized tests, which we know have um, disproportionate, disproportionate impact? We applaud California State University System's recent decision to eliminate the use of the SAT, for example. There is um, certainly a case to be made for more race-conscious programming. Uh, accreditors could include much more emphatic uh, consideration of issues of race and equity in their accreditation reviews. We certainly need to think about more culturally informed curriculum and trauma-informed advising. And we need to end practices such as weed-out courses in critical fields like engineering. The last two things, real quick, to, as I wrap up, are one is we need to rethink our federal financial aid system to look something more like the National Income-Based Repayment Program in Australia, which is simple, effective, and far more equitable than our own program, and far less confusing. And finally, we need to rethink time as a measure of learning. It was never, the credit hour was never designed for it, and in fact, non-time-based programs serve students of color and poor students much more effectively. I look forward to the discussion. Great. Thanks, Paul. So our next speaker is Jay Green. Uh, Jay is going to be talking about micro-schooling, how families will work together to educate their children. Go ahead, Jay. Thanks, Larry, and thanks, Rick. I'd like to talk to you today about micro-schooling, which is sometimes known as pod learning or co-op homeschooling. This is when a group of families join together to educate their children, typically with fewer than a dozen students. Instruction in these micro-schools is provided by some combination of the adults and the group of families taking turns, hiring of outside tutors, teachers, or group leaders, and the use of online resources. This instruction often occurs in the family's homes or in public spaces like libraries, parks, and museums. Micro-schooling was a, a small but rapidly growing movement before the pandemic. Now that many traditional schools will be unable or unwilling to offer full-time in-person instruction, interest in micro-schooling is skyrocketing. At a minimum, parents look to schools to provide them with custodial care and at least some educational opportunities. If schools fail to provide those basic services, families, especially upper-middle-class families, will adapt and devise their own approach to custodial care and educational opportunities. The solutions that many are devising now can generally be called micro-schooling. A large shift towards microschooling for this fall is happening whether we like it or not, whether we think it is high quality or not, whether we think it is equitable or not, and whether we think it is sensible or not for parents or schools to be resistant to fully reopening. Microschooling does not require permission or assistance from the government. If local school districts do not provide services people desire, 
they will try to figure out ways to get what they want or can afford. So there's a little point in discussing whether microschooling is good or bad. It is happening. Instead, it's more productive for us to consider the political ramifications of this spike in microschooling. First, let's consider government policies that might facilitate more effective and equitable microschooling. Upper middle class families are more likely to have the resources to assemble microschools without any assistance from the government. For lower income families, this is more challenging. The government could facilitate more equal access by allowing parents to have greater control over at least a portion of the funding it devotes to educating each child. There are a few different mechanisms by which this could be done. One of the places where microschooling gained a foothold before the pandemic was in Arizona. Arizona, along with a number of other states, have what are called Education Savings Accounts, or ESAs, where parents have the option of receiving most of the funds that the state would spend on the child's education in a special account that parents can use to purchase educational services. Parents can use ESA funds to pay tuition, hire tutors, buy computers, or in other ways to educate their kids. Parents have discovered that they can pool together funds from multiple families' ESAs to cover the cost of a microschool. Another option to to fund microschooling is through virtual charter schools. Charter schools are public schools that operate independently of traditional school districts. And virtual charters are the type of charter school that operates mostly online. Funding virtual charters would be like funding ESAs with the main difference being that the virtual charter would act as the assembler of microschools rather than funding parents directly to assemble them. The point is that if we are concerned that some families lack the resources to do microschooling effectively, we can address this with a variety of mechanisms to provide families with the resources they would need. These mechanisms already exist and would only need to be expanded. Some states, such as Oklahoma and South Carolina, are already taking steps to redirect a portion of government funds to help families operate microschools. As we would expect, efforts to redirect funds to assist families with microschools are opposed by the traditional public schools and their teacher unions. They would prefer to maintain control over all educational funds and instead have parents access online education or other assistance from the traditional public school system. Unfortunately, traditional public schools are not staffed or equipped to provide these services well. In addition, public schools that do not fully reopen cannot address the custodial care needs of families, even if they manage to improve their online services. Public schools are like restaurants that can't offer dine-in meals, but refuse to cut their wait staff or expand their takeout business, while at the same time undermining customers' efforts to switch their restaurant spending to grocery purchases. Parents will revolt. This will have political implications. The core of political support for traditional public schooling comes from the upper middle class. Traditional public schooling is largely designed for and has been relatively effective at serving the needs of the upper middle class. Those schools prioritize college prep with an emphasis on the types of abstract skills as opposed to vocational skills that are rewarded in a globalized knowledge economy. Schooling options available to the upper middle class in the suburbs or in urban magnet schools tend to be good at this. So the upper middle class defends status quo public schooling arrangements. Schools have generally not served lower income students as well. But the political reality is that lower income families have significantly less political power than upper income families. Again, we might lament this fact, but the disproportionate political power of the upper middle class is a political reality that is likely to endure for the foreseeable future. So if the status quo arrangements in education have been created and sustained because schools have served the needs of the upper middle class, 
it is important to consider what is likely to happen when public schools are no longer able to serve those needs and parents are forced to micro school. I don't want to overstate the extent of a likely change in political support for traditional public schooling, since public schools have a deep reservoir of support accumulated over many decades that will not disappear over a single pandemic school year. But it is inevitable that this micro-schooling experience will diminish upper-middle-class support for the traditional public schooling. That weakening of political support will be exacerbated by the fact that schools will be reducing the quantity and quality of their services while demanding increased funding. Other than in some exceptional circumstances, parents will not be rebated a portion of their taxes directed towards schools. Instead, many more parents will have to pay for schools that do not benefit them while having to pay out of pocket for the additional expenses of micro-schooling. I understand that having to pay twice has been the experience of private school families, but now the ranks of taxpayers having to pay twice will increase many fold. Political support for traditional public schools will be further undermined as parents consider just how much more public schooling costs than the micro-schooling arrangements they can build themselves. As of 2017, public schools spent an average of $14,439 per student. In places like New York, New Jersey, and DC, per pupil spending is almost twice the national average. If a group of families gathered into, micro, into a micro school with 10 students had that level of resources, they could hire their own full-time teacher and have plenty left over for enrichment activities and tutors. Parents may begin to wonder what exactly traditional schools with classes of 25 students do with roughly $360,000 per classroom. Being confronted with greater transparency about costs may make parents doubt the financial efficiency of traditional public schooling. If you're interested in learning more about microschooling, there is an association called Prenda that is helping families start and operate microschools. Necessity is the mother of invention and the necessities of this pandemic are contributing to the invention and widespread use of micro-schooling next semester. Thank you, and I look forward to the Q&A. Great, Jay, thank you. Um, our next speaker is Linda Darling-Hammond. She is an Emeritus Professor of Education at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. She's also founded and is the CEO of the Learning Policy Institute, and she is currently the President of California State Board of Education. Uh, Linda will be discussing race, equity, and education. Linda, please go ahead. Thanks very much. I hadn't intended to dive into the virtual schooling debate, but I do want to note that I agree that uh, distance learning can work. Uh, Southern New Hampshire provides a good example of that. Uh, my niece, who is a young 30-year-old black student in Washington, D.C., is a current student of Southern New Hampshire, having previously been exploited by for-profit proprietary schools and struggling with all of the dimensions that uh, were laid out by Paul. Uh, at the same time, uh, virtual schooling is not always successful. Um, the for-profit virtual charter schools that were studied by the Hoover Institution here at Stanford, which is generally um, favorable towards charters in general, found that they uh, typically uh, are graduating kids at about half the rate of other um, public and private schools in the country. And so this quality dimension is really going to be important there, just as it is in the conversation we're about to have about um, race uh, education and quality. We're in the middle right now of three crises. Uh, we have a public health crisis, we have an economic crisis, we have a civil rights crisis. All of these disproportionately impact black children and families, 
and communities of color. Um, this is just one manifestation of the inequalities we experience in education. Uh, we have inequalities in the resources and opportunities uh, that we see in society generally occurring in schools. Uh, funding is unequal. In most states, uh, students with greater needs get less money than, in, than those who are more affluent across the country. Students with predominantly students of color spend about $1,800 on average less than those that have the fewest numbers of students of color. Uh, access to qualified teachers, high quality curriculum, uh, and resources of all kinds are inequitably distributed and have been for a long time. It's a function in part of the way we grew up public schools as local community uh, requirements in uh, land-grant um, states as they, they unfolded. Uh, but unlike many other industrialized societies, we have not yet equalized the uh, resources that go to our schools. Um, and in fact, um, race is an even stronger predictor of inequality indicators than income or poverty. Um, this situation has been compounded by resegregation since the 1980s. Uh, we had a major set of um, reforms in the 60s and 70s that uh, substantially desegregated, made some progress towards equalizing funding, had a huge decrease in the achievement gap as a result of that, um, and much greater desegregation. But those policies were mostly eliminated in the 1980s, and schools are now much more segregated than they were uh, back then. Uh, and there's been a growing number of apartheid schools which have concentrations of poverty uh, and students of color especially African-American and Latinx students um, that typically are also under-resourced. This problem has been exacerbated since the Great Recession. Uh, about half of our states have not yet returned to the levels of funding for schools that they had in 2008. Uh, and during that time, funding and supports to poor districts got worse when state budgets shrank and the local capacity of communities drove more of the funding. And meanwhile, we have uh, since that time had a more and more tattered safety net for children. About one in four children in this country lives in poverty, uh, a much higher rate than any other industrialized country. Rates of homelessness have been increasing, food insecurity, uh, obviously in the COVID environment, employment insecurity as well. Um, so our statistics for children um, from mortality rates to engagement in everything from early learning to um, health indicators and schooling indicators are much more like those of third world countries for um, children of color than they are um, like those of European or now high achieving Asian countries. Um, all these things disproportionately um, affect uh, students of color and in the pandemic, um, public schools have really been uh, a lifeline for a lot of families. Um, millions of meals uh, prepared and delivered to go for kids who rely not only for lunch on the free lunch program, but for dinner and weekend meals as well, um, outreach to families, efforts to close the digital divide, which has been with us for two decades. I think in California, we've probably closed that divide uh, by about half, but we have a long way to go. So now what happens as schools struggle to open uh, is that we need public education to be able to step up. In the short run, that's going to mean 
Uh, federal money, so far less than half of 1% of the $3 trillion spent uh, has gone to public schools uh, to tackle both the needs to open schools well uh, and to maintain stability. Um, we also have a huge equity agenda, which includes the policing of children in schools uh, as much as the policing of uh, communities that you will be talking about shortly. Uh, we have seen that um, police in schools, there are millions of children now who attend schools that have a police force inside the school, but no school counselors, school nurses, or mental health professionals. Uh, disproportionate suspensions, expulsions, um, and even assaults by um, school resource officers um, are commonplace. Children as young as five or six in schools that are policed have been assaulted, arrested, handcuffed, beaten, suspended, sometimes expelled for acts as small as having a butter knife in a backpack, texting during class, or failing to respond to a question or a command. And these high rates of school exclusion uh, then also lead to higher rates of dropping out. So we have a, a set of equity agendas that have to be uh, addressed. The social conditions we're currently experiencing often lead to tectonic shifts in policy toward greater equity as they did in the 1870s during Reconstruction, the 1930s during the New Deal, the 1960s and the Great Society and War on Poverty. And as Rick said earlier, the key question is whether the social upheaval we're now experiencing will lead to the, these kinds of policies or whether we are indeed going to be experiencing the first stages in the fall of Rome. When is that it? Hello? Six minutes. My chimes just went off. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much for being so prompt. Okay, um, we now change away from education to policing and criminal justice. Our first speaker of this second segment is David Sklansky. Uh, he will be discussing defunding the police and community-based policing. He is a professor of Stanford Law School and a co-director of Stanford's Criminal Justice Center. David, please go ahead. Thanks for inviting me. I'm going to talk about the tension between current calls to defund the police and the older ideal of community policing, an ideal that was widely embraced by police reformers in the 1980s and 1990s, but that many activists now spurn as a dead end. Despite this tension, there's a significant and overlooked area of overlap between community policing and police defunding. And I'm going to argue that this area of overlap should and probably will be at the center of efforts over the next several years to address chronic problems of racism and violence and policing. Different people who call for defunding the police describe what they want in different ways, but few, if any, of them are asking for police departments to disappear tomorrow. They want more investment in alternative, non-punitive approaches to community safety, and they want to slash police budgets and the number of police officers, not just or even primarily to save money, but because they argue the key to reducing police violence is reducing public contact with the police. Like police defunding today, community policing in its heyday could be hard to pin down. Sometimes it seemed more of a slogan than a program. But the core idea was that the police shouldn't see themselves as an elite force of professionals separate from the public. Instead, they should work hand in hand with the public to provide community safety. The key strategies were consultation, trust building, and partnership. And almost by definition, this meant more, not less, contact between the police and the public. 
So there is a real and fundamental tension between the agenda of community policing and the agenda of police defunding. The funders want to reduce contacts between the police and the public. Community police advocates wanted to increase those contacts. But the kind of contacts that advocates of community policing wanted to increase between the police and the public were not the kinds of contacts that police defunders are most concerned about reducing. When today's activists talk about the need to reduce contacts between the police and the public, they focus first and foremost on the kinds of interactions that so often spiral into violence, particularly when the police are confronting Asian Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans. And when defunders give examples of the kinds of functions that could be better addressed by agencies other than the police, they talk most often about school discipline, about traffic enforcement, about calls to diffuse low-level arguments, and about responding to people in mental distress. At its core, community policing was never about increasing any of those kinds of contacts. In fact, many advocates of community policing talked about the need for police to stop chasing 911 calls because that took them away from the kinds of interactions that could build genuine partnerships. And a big part of community policing was precisely the idea that the police should share responsibility for public safety with a range of other agencies. Now, it's true that police defunders don't just want to shift school discipline, mental health response, and traffic enforcement away from law enforcement agencies. They tend to think police departments as a whole are irredeemably wrongheaded, inherently committed to a punitive, militaristic, domineering approach to community safety. Community policing in this view could never be more than window dressing. And there are reasonable people who hold this view. But I think they're wrong. Polls show that most Americans, including most black Americans, like most of the respondents to Larry's poll, don't support reducing police spending or reducing the number of police officers. Researchers consistently report that residents of poor minority neighborhoods want less police abuse, but also want more of the right kind of policing. They want kind of the kind of protection that suburban police departments and private security patrols give to affluent white communities. And they're not diluted. The weight of the evidence suggests that community policing at its best really did change the culture of police departments, or at least many officers. And it really did reduce crime and make people feel safer, including residents of poor minority neighborhoods. Unfortunately, there isn't much evidence of whether community policing reduced police violence because uh, to its great discredit, the community policing movement was never really focused on the issue of police violence. It's painful to recall, in fact, how widely neglected that issue was until the last decade when Black Lives Matter put it back on the national agenda. But if we therefore lack solid evidence that community policing can reduce police violence, we have even less reason to believe that cutting police budgets or reducing the number of police officers will do that. A dozen years ago, when the Great Recession forced cities like Vallejo, California to slash their police budgets and shrink their police forces, the result usually was an increase, not a decrease in police violence. Overworked, underpaid officers are more likely to be violent, and departments strapped for resources tend to abandon efforts at community policing. The examples we have of cities that have reduced police violence while also reducing crime, cities like Camden, New Jersey, often have increased, not decreased, spending on law enforcement. When Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked what a world with defunded police would look like, she said it would look the way that affluent white suburbs look today. But affluent white suburbs often spend more on policing and have more officers per capita than the larger and poorer cities that they neighbor. 
What we need is not a return to community policing as it was pursued in the 1980s and 1990s, and not a, sla not a slashing of police budgets and police staffing, but a new consensus for police transformation drawing on both community policing and on police defunding and operating at their intersection. And I believe that that consensus is beginning to emerge. I look forward to the question and answer. Perfect. Okay, um, our next speaker is Gary Feinerman. Uh, Gary, it, today, will take the lead in all-time number of appearances on what happens next at three times. Uh, we welcome Gary back. Gary is a federal district judge in the Northern District of Illinois. He will discuss race and criminal justice in federal court. Gary, go ahead. Gary, you're still on mute. Thank you, uh, Larry and Rick. and. Um uh, thank you for uh, having me on the call. Uh, I'm going to give a bird's eye view of the principal ways in which legal issues at the intersection of race and criminal justice manifest in federal court. I'm not going to be addressing the fact that people of color are substantially overrepresented in the defendant and prison populations. It's a very important subject, but beyond the scope of my six minutes. Uh, also, my discussion will be descriptive, not normative. Uh, I'll leave the normative analysis to others on the call. Uh, I'm going to begin with cases involving individual officers and individual civilians, and then we'll move on to cases involving more systemic practices. So the question is, let's say um, you believe that a police officer has violated, mistreated you in a way that violates your federal rights. What can you do? Uh, you could, in federal court, you can bring a lawsuit under Section 1983 of Title uh, 42. The statute was passed after the Civil War, and it allows any person to sue any state or local official who, while acting under color of state law, violated that person's federal constitutional or statutory rights. And the Supreme Court created a parallel, re parallel remedy called a Bivens action for when the alleged wrongdoer is a federal official. So a very common 1983 case that I see in court and that many federal judges see is when a person arrested and charged for a crime sues the officer or officers who arrested him or her and uh, who also provided the grounds for the subsequent prosecution. The claim could be that the officer used excessive force during the arrest. That's an alleged violation of the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on unreasonable seizures or the officer planted or manufactured evidence that led to my being prosecuted. Depending on what part of the country you're in, that could be either a Fourth Amendment or a 14th Amendment due process claim. Uh, the officer beat me up during an interrogation and forced me to confess. That's an alleged violation of the Fifth Amendment. And the cases I just described don't necessarily have a racial cadence, but there often are racial issues in the immediate background, such as when the case involves a white officer and a non-white civilian. Uh, those of you in Chicago are probably familiar with uh, Commander John Burge from the Chicago Police Department. Uh, he's most known for torturing some 200 people and giving false confessions, and there were many uh, civil actions brought against him in the city of Chicago. There are cases with an explicit racial cadence. In other words, the officer, not only did the officer use excessive force during the arrest, uh, but also did so because of my race, and that could give rise to a claim under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Uh, there are also criminal remedies uh, for violations of constitutional rights, 
And those criminal cases are brought, obviously, by the federal government, the Department of Justice, and they're brought under Section 242 of Title 18. It's basically the criminal equivalent of a Section 1983 action. It criminalizes the willful violation of a person's constitutional rights. Uh, those don't happen very often against police officers. Uh, one, one such case was not brought against John Burge. He ended up being prosecuted uh, for lying during the discovery phase of the civil suits brought against him. But as it, as it happens, I, I presided over one such case a couple years ago. A police officer came upon a car filled with uh, six black teenagers. The officer suspected correctly, as it turns out, that they had stolen the car. The teenagers tried to speed away, and the officer began shooting into the car and then kept shooting even after the car started slowly rolling into a light pole, and he ultimately emptied his clip of 16 bullets. Nobody was killed, but two of the teenagers were wounded. The United States brought a prosecution against this officer under Section 242, uh, and the charge was that the officer had criminally violated the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on unlawful seizures. Uh, and all the, although the charge didn't, wasn't predicated on the Equal Protection Clause, racial issues were very much in the backdrop. The teenagers were black, the officer was not, and the officer's defense attorneys tried without success to ensure that no black person made it onto the jury. And the jury, having viewed the dash cam video, having heard from a couple of the teenagers, and having heard from other officers who were at the scene, convicted the defendant, and he was sentenced to five years imprisonment. There are also cases in federal court that involve more systemic uh, situations. Uh, uh, for example, uh, Chavez versus Illinois State Police, which is a quintessential case in our area of the country. The allegation in this class action was that the Illinois State Police's drug interdiction program called Operation Valkyrie had a practice of racial profiling, that is of stopping and searching black and Latino motorists based on their race. And the allegation was that that violated the Equal Protection Clause and the case was brought under Section 1983. The district court dismissed the case and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed now, in so doing, the Seventh Circuit made clear that if the officers had indeed engaged in racial profiling, it would have violated the Equal Protection Clause. But to show racial profiling, the plaintiffs had to prove that the Illinois State Police's practices had a racially discriminatory effect and were motivated by a discriminatory purpose. And the court held that the plaintiffs had not made either showing. And then finally, uh, there are situations where systemic uh, practices and allegations of systemic misconduct make their way into a criminal case. Uh, there was a case recently, a number of cases recently in Chicago, uh, where allegations of systemic racism was the basis for a selective prosecution defense. These cases were known as the fake stash house cases. Undercover ATF agents posing as drug couriers would identify a target, usually a convicted felon, and present him with the opportunity to rob a drug stash house controlled by the courier suppliers. The supposed drug courier would tell the target to recruit a crew, gather weapons, and plan the robbery, and all would, going, would be going according to plan. Everybody would be in the car on the way to the address, and law enforcement would stop them within a block of uh, them getting a block uh, of the, uh, what was supposed to be the address. Uh, of course, there was no stash house. Uh, and so these were fake stash house 
uh, conspiracies. He had a conspiracy as a crime. 97% of the defendants in these cases were black, 10% were Latino, 11% were white. A group of defendants uh, gathered together, joined together uh, with the help of Professor Futterman's colleagues at the University of Chicago and moved to dismiss their indictments on selective enforcement grounds. Both sides got experts. Uh, the cases ended up uh, resolving with plea agreements uh, so the courts never decided, in fact, whether there was selective enforcement. Thank you, Gary. Um, we have, this is a perfect lead, and I guess this is intentional, for our next speaker, speaker uh, Craig Futterman. Craig is a clinical professor of law at the University of Chicago and resident dean of the college. He founded and served as director of the Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project at the Mandel Legal Aid Clinic since 2000. Uh, Craig will discuss races, racial discrimination and police brutality. Craig, please go ahead. Thank you, Larry and Rick. The murder of Ahmaud Arbery hit me especially hard. I mean, just jogging. It wasn't like I wasn't viscerally aware of the ongoing reality of racism when I watched the video of those white men hunt down and murder another young black man, this time for jogging in a white neighborhood. But that knowledge didn't make the pain of racism hurt any less. And I got to admit that it, it knocked me off my feet and I, I couldn't function for days. While it didn't involve on-duty police officers, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, like Trayvon Martin six years earlier, very much a story about race and policing, about the policing of black bodies who don't belong in certain spaces, whose presence by definition is suspicious, threatening, even criminal. It brought me back to my time as a, as a law student at Stanford. Close friend, Frank, who was a fourth-year medical student there, like Ahmaud Arbery was jogging in a residential neighborhood in Palo Alto with his headset on, listening to music, just jogging. Palo Alto police, perhaps in response to a call from a neighbor seeing a black man in their neighborhood, ran up on Frank. He didn't hear him. He had his headphones on, continued jogging. They beat him so badly he couldn't move as he lay in the street covered in his own blood. They then locked him up, and things just would never be the same for him. One thing that my medical friends have taught me is that we'll never cure all that ills policing in America unless we get the diagnosis right, that bad diagnoses, poor diagnoses will lead to poor remedies. So we've got to be clear about what the nature and causes of the disease are, and that's racism, institutional denial, police impunity, lack of police accountability. Because these issues are so fundamental, it causes all too many of us to trend toward the defensiveness and paralysis, just kind of throwing up our hands in futility, because it just feels too big. So in the remainder of my six minutes, I want to leave folks with at least one concrete thing, one concrete thought about what we could do to address racism in policing. And it all begins with honesty. At the moment, however, words like transparency feel too soft, too sanitized, reformist. They don't feel radical enough as though we're avoiding the real issue. But as we've seen in Chicago, um, real honesty can be transformative. Operationalizing transparency isn't just about just a soft reform that leads intact the status quo, but it's about redistributing real power from police to people most impacted by police abuse. Soon after I moved back to Chicago from Stanford about last time, about 20 years ago, to create a, that Civil Rights and Police Accountability Project at UFC with one of my mentors and heroes, Randy Stone, um, my law students and I began to build a partnership with People in Stateway Gardens, which was a public housing community that made up about eight square blocks on Chicago's south side, about 10 minutes from campus. Stateway was 
part of the greatest concentration of public housing and the poverty in the, in the entire nation, and also true to Chicago's history and all too real and, and all too real present, not just history, an entirely segregated community. Everybody who lived at Stateway was black. My students and I spent a good part of our first seven years um, working from a vacant garden apartment in Stateway in partnership with families who lived there fighting systemic human rights abuses. And it was there that we learned what impunity looked and felt like on the ground. Got to know a woman by the name of Diane Bond. She was then a 50-year-old public school janitor, mom of three sons. But over the course of the year, um, Ms. Bond was repeatedly sexually abused by a group of officers known on the streets as the Skullcap Crew for watch caps that they wore. We sued, um, as, as Judge Bonnerman said, we, we brought a systemic-based suit in addition to an individual suit, sort of challenging systemic practices. And part of what we fought and won was access to years of police misconduct complaints and investigations. And by our analysis of these, we saw exactly how groups of racist and even sadistic officers like those in the Skullcap crew had have been able to operate with impunity in black communities like Stateway. Problem was everything that we learned, um, we got under a protective order. We couldn't share it publicly. But after many years of litigation and a public campaign, in 2014, we established the legal principle in Illinois that police misconduct records belong to the public, belong to the people. One thing to win a major lawsuit, another thing to bring it home. And to bring this legal precedent home, to try to make it real, we launched what's now known as the Citizens Police Data Project, or CPDP which is a public database that gives everybody, um, from ordinary people, researchers, lawyers, journalists, policymakers, organizers, advocates, people struggling in prison, all of us, with access to information about every single police misconduct complaint in Chicago. Never been anything like that in our history in the nation. Fundamental redistribution power from police to ordinary people, from police to communities most impacted by police abuse. And what people have been doing with this information has been nothing short of transformative. Folks have used CPDP to win their freedom, prosecute civil rights violations by police, uncover patterns of police abuse. The U.S. Department of Justice relied on information in that database to document the police department's pattern and practice of civil rights violations. Probably most importantly, ordinary people in communities most affected by police abuse have used it to challenge systemic police violence against black, brown, and poor people in Chicago. Been a true critical tool in the fight for community oversight here. We built upon this principle to win the public release of another horrific video of Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke firing 16 shots into the body of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, most of which while he lay helpless on the street, further exposing again the theme of truth about here the routine operation of the police code of silence, some honesty, um, which among other things led to the very first criminal murder prosecution and conviction of an on-duty Chicago police officer for killing a black person in our history. A couple observations in closing. Um, two things have given me, maybe this is the stuff for the, for the end, but two things have given me real hope in this moment. First, through my own pain, I see real hope and beauty in the hundreds of thousands of people around the world who, who continue to lift their voices together to affirm that Black Lives Matter, people of all races, genders, social statuses, protesting police violence, demanding change. And if there's anything we've learned in our many years fighting racism conditions of police impunity and denial, it's that departments don't change on their own. Things don't change unless we make them change. Second and last point is um, for hope, too, is that in the midst of this painful and deadly pandemic, one of the things that it's done is to make us all stop. This is something that Rick mentioned at the beginning, to stop so many of the things we've taken for granted, how we do things, how we organize our lives, grind it to a halt. 
including systems that have fueled mass incarceration. Police and jailers don't want to die from COVID-19 either. The basic law of momentum dictates we've got to stop before we're able to change directions. This fourth stop provides each of us with an opportunity, the opportunity to question all we've done, to ask whether it makes sense to keep doing it, and just to do things better. We meet at the safe social distance today, not just in the midst of a pandemic, but we also find ourselves in a parallel moment, brutally awake to yet another reminder, no matter how many times we shout that Black Lives Matter, that millions of people in our society remain incapable of seeing Black folks as fully human, and many of them sadly still police officers, that racism persists. Bottom line, we have to stop before we can change directions. Craig, thank you very much. All right, now it's time for questions and answers, and I encourage all the speakers to jump in at any time. I'm gonna start with uh, our initial installment related to education, uh, and our first question is gonna to go to Linda. Linda, um, you as the uh, head of the California State Board of Education, you represent um, traditional public schools. Um, Jay and Paul uh, kind of represent different concepts outside of the traditional public school system. Um, Jay was mentioning uh, micro-schooling and the use of pods and families acting together sort of outside the traditional school uh, process. What do you think about micro-schooling? Um, how do you think it, um, as Jay said, it's, it's going to happen whether we want it or not? How can the traditional public schools help families educate their children? Well, um let me start by saying that the public school system in California includes what you might call traditional public schools run by school districts, as well as a large body of um, charter schools. We have a robust and um, vibrant charter school community in California, which is also under the um, oversight of the state board. Um, and it includes virtual schools, um, not at the college level because the, we only go K-12, but there are districts like San Diego, for example, which runs a very high quality uh, public virtual school. Um, there's a very wide range of um, uh, quality in virtual schools, which is something that we're tackling here um, because we want distance learning to succeed. It, there are ways in which it can succeed, but it really requires a lot more um, investment in both professional learning and regulation than we have had in the past, I think. Um, so let me start by saying that the quote, traditional system encompasses everything that we've been talking about. On the question of micropods, uh, it is absolutely true that families are banding together to create both um, learning that might replace traditional schooling, uh, including you know private schools and charters, as well as uh, district-run schools, or that may supplement that, and that will um, that the affluent have more resources to do that uh, and that there are concerns raised in the New York Times just last week about the increasing segregation uh, and um, disparity that, that can be um, encouraged by that. But as uh, Jay said, it's here. Uh, and we all as parents or grandparents in my case want to you know, see our kids succeed and be supported. So I, I think that um, the notion of micropods, which is let's find ways to, particularly in times when kids may not be able in every district to come together for in-person schooling, let's create an alternative uh, way for kids to be together to continue to move in their education is a legitimate concern. 
there are districts like San, San Francisco, West Contra Costa, that are kind of creating the public equivalent of micropods by working with community-based organizations, the school district professional educators, as well as uh, folks who work in those community-based organizations to open up spaces in libraries, community buildings, as well as schools to augment the time in which kids will be in formal schooling together uh, and creating very similar kinds of support systems. These often, because they tend to serve kids who have greater needs, also provide lunches and um, other services that may be needed. Uh, and I think we're going to see that kind of personalized approach increasing. And if we're smart, we will figure out how to make that work in all kinds of communities so that kids are well taken care of, not only in the more affluent households. How do you, how do you see it working if, in fact, we go to a uh, purely online environment? Do you think that the school building will be open and that kids can be dropped off there for custodial care? Um, that food will be provided, um, is it some, it, and who will be there to manage that process? Is that how, how it will work? And then family, they can either take their classes online in school, or how do you see all that, all that working? <laughs> so um, one of the reasons I have to get off this call a little bit early is because we're getting more guidance out to the schools that will uh, be announced this week, and I'm in the middle of working on that. In California, um, we have a health standard, by a uh, community health standard, which will determine whether schools can open in different counties. Um, and about half of our counties will be offering in-person traditional school um, for everyone. And about half of them will start out in distance learning. Um, and uh, we'll hopefully move to in-school learning for all or um, or some of their kids or in some kind of a hybrid model, you know, within the next month or so. We're, we're pushing very hard for in-person learning in safe ways. Uh, how will it operate? It will operate um, where in a variety of ways. There are childcare guidelines as well. Childcare can be open in certain circumstances. We hope that as many districts as possible will bring back elementary students. In fact, we have an elementary school waiver even in counties that uh, may uh, in general have to close schools uh, for a variety of both health reasons. Younger children uh, appear to um, be less likely to transmit or become infected uh, and elementary models of cohorting can create more safety with physical distancing and face coverings and cohorts. So anyway, we hope that we'll see a lot of kids in school. We will have child care providers um, operating sometimes on school site, um, uh, school sites and sometimes in other community settings um, for kids. You know, libraries, as I said, are also part of the mix so that um, kids have a combination of supports at home and supports in the community as well as as many as possible of them going to in-person school. I could go on at length about this, but I don't think you want me to get too deep in the weeds. <laughs> okay, uh, this is Rick. I, I wanted to, to have offer one question for, for all of the education panelists. It's actually drawing on Craig Futterman's uh, observation about the importance of kind of diagnosing the problem before we uh, immediately move to reform. And what I'm wondering about is with education, uh, it's, it's beyond debate that education, both primary and secondary, as well as higher education, is 
fundamentally important, not only to individuals, but to the health of the nation and, and the success of our nation. And this is true um, when we think of civic participation, political participation, and also in terms of economic outcomes. So as the richest nation in the world, uh, one might expect that we would have created educational systems that work for all Americans, uh, but we haven't really done that. Paul talked about some of the disparities in the higher education context, and Linda, you talked specifically uh, and, and movingly about the disparities in the primary and secondary education context. Across that entire range, what are some of the impediments to reform? How come as a nation we're not doing better with extending educational opportunities to all of our people? Well, um, maybe I, I can offer some, something slightly contrary, uh, um, which is one of the problems is not uh, the lack of money. I mean, one of the points I tried to make is, is that, yes, we're, we're one of the richest countries in the world, and we also spend the most among the world uh, or among, among the most of, of all countries uh, per pupil on education. So it's not for lack of spending that we have failed to produce the kind of system that serves all students that you would like, Rick. Um, uh, so I, I, and I think that, that it is important to know what is not the problem. And uh, I don't think the problem is fundamentally a lack of resources. So maybe I'll piggyback on that um, and say it may not be the total amount of money, but it is in part the way we use our money. Uh, we have tremendous inequality in spending across schools. The top spending states spend three times more than the bottom spending states within states. The top spending districts typically spend, you know, three or four times as much as the bottom spending districts. So there's huge inequality in our access uh, uh, to education. Um, and because we have a tattered safety net for kids in many other countries, um, there is national health care, there's uh, a variety of supports for children that, um, you know, free early childhood education, um, supports for um, uh, both equitable funding in schools and more funding for those where there are recent immigrants or other kids who have needs. Um, and so our schools have to pick up the tab for that. If you think about the fact that about 25% of a salary is health care and other benefit costs now, and which go up every year, and the fact that in other countries they don't have to pay for health care costs for their employees, you can see some of the differential in the absolute dollars that are spent in other countries in here. We actually spend more than most other countries in higher ed, way less than other industrialized countries in early childhood, and um, we're in the top tier in um, spending in K-12, but again with this uh, ballast of having to pay for all the inequalities in society for children as well as dealing with the inequalities in the school funding system. So that is one piece of it. It came from the fact that as, as we grew up as a nation, we actually cared about education and asked towns to start schools with their own property tax bases. Those are very unequal and it's been a long slog to correct them. But it also came from the fact that we've had systemic racism in this country in education from the beginning, from the time it was a crime to teach an enslaved person to read, to the time that we had segregated and dramatically unequal schools. Uh, and every step of the way has been a fight to get the equitable resources uh, and supports into schools that serve different kids. 
So that's part of what we have to do. We've been making some headway on it in some states. You look at a state like New Jersey, which uh, fought school finance reform for 30 years in nine court cases. Uh, the lawyers will know Robinson v. Cahill uh, and Abbott v. Uh, Burke as the lawsuit names. Uh, finally, in 1998, Christy Todd Whitman, a Republican governor, uh, put in the parity funding that had been requested for the predominantly um, black districts that were low uh, wealth, Newark, Patterson, Camden, you could go on and on. Uh, that state, which is now a majority minority state in terms of the population of school children, ranks number one or two in the nation on every indicator of educational achievement and attainment. Um, they did that by putting that money in and spending it wisely for whole school reforms, for investments in educator quality, for standards and assessments that were focused on higher order thinking skills, um, and for a variety of wraparound supports for kids. Um, that state and Massachusetts achieved comparably to the highest performing countries in the world, um, and Massachusetts did something like that um, many years before New Jersey did. So it's possible for us to address these problems. We just have not chosen to do it in every state. That's right, and I would echo Linda's comment about how we choose to spend money in uh, post-secondary as well. Um, in fact, if you take a look at the rise in so-called merit aid uh, in the shift from need-based aid to merit aid, it's quite inequitable and tends to go to those students who don't actually need it while leaving more and more students behind, students of color and poor students behind, and forcing them to take on inordinate levels of debt as well. I would also add that certain inequities are baked throughout the higher ed system, so it's everything from the policies we have around admissions, of course, it's about how we do housing policies. I'll just share very quickly in my own case. Um, I was taken aback when I got an email from a mother who said, "My, uh, we, we have a modest background, modest income. My son uh, has to work 35 hours a week to attend to your campus-based programs, and yet your housing lottery is based on GPA. He's an engineering student. He already takes the hardest curriculum you offer, and he works almost a full-time job. Of course, his GPA is lower. Now you're penalizing him as well. And it really was a moment, a wake-up moment, and we've brought in des uh, equity designers to kind of go through all of our systems and processes to see in which ways we've inadvertently created these sorts of barriers to students. Um, we go on quite uh, at length um, about the ways in which in higher education, we've often thought that access was sort of the winning the game and access is really just table stakes. It's everything we do once we bring students in. And, and again, we could go on at length about the ways in which we make students of color and poor students feel that they don't belong, that they don't have a place or that they don't matter, and that their ways of knowing aren't privileged in any way or valued. Paul, maybe just to follow up on, can you comment a little bit about some of the creative things that you're doing, why you've seen such an explosion in the number of students at your school? Uh, I find this 135,000 number of learners just staggering. What are you doing so right? Um, it's interesting. When I've had calls from lots and lots of colleagues who are suddenly faced with having to 
um, serve their students online this fall. This happened in the spring, actually, when everyone went suddenly remote overnight. But it's also happening as they prepare for fall, in which they will more than likely have to be back online again. And I would say that 85% of the questions have to do with how they going, how are they going to deliver their academic program. And I say to them all the time, you will, your, your faculty will figure this out. And yes, it will be uneven, and I get that. But you will win or lose on everything else, on the psycho-emotional sort of care that you bring to students. And I think where you know when I describe our success, and just to give you a sense of this. Uh, for our online population, they're typically seeing graduation rates in the single digits or teens. We serve that same population and get them to a 50% graduation rate. So if you're thinking about Stanford or Harvard, that doesn't sound very high. For this population, it's really, really good. Um, but the success in that, the secret sauce, is our advising and our student support and our student success efforts. And that academic advisor probably spends less than 20% of his or her time on matters of academic. It's everything else. It's the first time someone submits a paper. They haven't written a paper in 10 years. They tried college when they were 20. They weren't ready for it. Our life got in the way. And they don't do very well. And their first instinct is to say, see, I knew I wasn't college material. The whole world's been telling me that. And that critical conversation, that critical moment um, is really key. And, and we have to sort of weave that dedication to student success throughout and I think uh, for our adults, the thing I alluded to this at the very end of my six minutes is giving flexibility to people who, are, who have huge constraints on time. Everything takes longer if you're poor, right? Everything from getting groceries, if you don't have a washer dryer in your apartment, you have to go to a lot. Everything takes more time. And I'll just finish. I'll give you the best example. I was talking to one of our students in one of our non-time-based programs. So we have a series of experimental programs that let students really drive their pace and their calendar. She's the single mother of a 10-year-old with chronic respiratory illness. She had been enrolled in Roxbury Community College and Bunker Hill Community College in the Boston area. She came from Roxbury, one of the poorer communities in the city. Um, what she said to me was every time that her daughter uh, had a flare-up, she would have to miss class, sometimes seven, maybe even ten days. Falls behind, doesn't get her papers in, misses an exam, and she, her transcript was littered with withdrawals and Fs. And as she was doing that, she was also burning up her federal financial aid eligibility. She came into our non-time-based program, and now every time her daughter gets sick, as she put it to me, I just hit the pause button. There's no penalty for that. I, I'm the schedule. I drive the schedule. She was flying on her way to a bachelor's degree. She's brilliant. She's a great student, gritty. I mean, any employer would want this woman. But our time-based, really rigid structures of place and time don't work well for working adults and don't often work well for poor students who are often the breadwinners in their family. We test this out, by the way, with the most underserved populations in the world. We have the most ambitious program to bring full degree programs to refugees. We work in five countries in Africa and the Middle East. Uh, we work with homeless kids in L.A. County with one of our partners on Kids of Time to the Foster Care System. We work with DACA students in the Rio Grande Valley. If, when we can put them in programs that give them that kind of flexibility, but really good wraparound services the way I talk about, that really understand the almost trauma-informed advising, we often use that phrase, um, their success rates are exceedingly high, 85% graduation rates for, for a population that doesn't come anywhere close in traditional programs. So great care, understanding of where these students live, where their lives are lived, and then giving them flexibility around time are critical. Thanks, Paul. Um, Jay, Linda was discussing um, the success of New Jersey and Massachusetts 
what do you think that they're doing right that uh, allows those two states to outperform some of the rest Well, so one of the things that they're fortunate to have is a lot of very well-educated and affluent uh, parents, and that, that tends to help. Um, it's also the case uh, that um, other uh, uh, locations, uh, New York, D.C., uh, and New Jersey are all spending uh, more than $20,000 per pupil per year, um, while comparable results are being produced by districts that, or by states that spend a third as much. Um, and so uh, I don't think we know what uh, uh, they're doing in Massachusetts or New Jersey that's right, um, nor do I think it has to do with resources. But the important point here is, is that doing it right is going to be different things for different people. And one of the difficulties we have is forcing everyone into the same system to do it the same way, even when people might prefer or benefit from doing it in different ways. I mean, one of the difficulties with the California response to the pandemic in schools is they've declared that if the rate of the virus is too high in any county, they're going to shut all schools in that county no matter what, uh, and that would include private schools too. Um, and so this lack of flexibility, um, lack of allowing people to decide for themselves in their own circumstances how to do things is gonna force people entirely outside of that system and into micro schools where they basically solve it themselves. So California is essentially a recipe this fall for a huge increase in microschooling. And I don't think that the public school folks have fully thought through the political cost to them over the long run in goodwill um, if they force everyone out of their system and into their own arrangements. Uh, and, uh, and then also when people are in their own arrangements, they're gonna start thinking about costs and they're gonna think about what they could do if they had over $20,000 per pupil, uh, what they could do with a group of 10 kids, they'd have you know, over $200,000 to work with, and they would have to think, what does a public school do when it has 25 kids in a class? That would be over half a million dollars in resources. What are they doing with those resources? When people begin to wonder about this, it will not be good politically for the traditional public school system. And so, so I don't. I think it's kind of the wrong question, Larry. Sorry, um, that to, to ask what they do right. Um, uh, some of it is that they're well-educated and affluent. Some of it is uh, uh, things we don't even know. But there isn't a single answer. Is I think the the most important thing to know. Can I? Uh, Please, can I Linda. You're. I think you're. I think you're. You're. I think your name has been mentioned as in the debate stage. Yes. You. <laughs> Um, first of all, there's not a one-size-fits-all in California. It is true that in order to open schools immediately, one has to have been off the county monitoring list for 14 days, and that means that in some counties um, it's going to take a little while longer to open schools until the rates of infection and hospitalization go down. We are one of the most impacted uh, states, and some of our cities are among the most impacted. Uh, in the country right now. But even in those places, there's a, 
a waiver process, which is what I'm working on the guidance for right now with others, uh, so that um, elementary schools and others that want to work with small groups of kids, almost in pods, uh, if they are in parts of the county that are uh, safe enough with the right features can get going sooner. And then we expect that those places will bring the rates down and that we, once we get schools up and running um, to the greatest extent practicable, um, and that will be to a very large extent, we expect most schools will open a little later than was originally planned. Um, they will not have to close down if the county goes back on the, um, the watch list. There'll be an individualized judgment made for each school about how they're managing their health and safety within that school. So it's not one size fits all. It's pretty complicated, actually. <laughs> um, and trying to be very responsive to the fact that most of the public school districts very much want to offer in-person education. We've also gotten better at distance learning and um, you know, we were one of the states that said early on uh, that, you know, you can't collect uh, any resources unless you're offering distance learning. It was highly variable, but there were a lot of districts that did an, a quite extraordinary job, have learned a lot, very uh, substantial professional development going into the fall, and some kids are actually excelling in a virtual context some of whom who were not previously, we expect that to get better. So I do uh, appreciate that it is hard for families and there will be people who want to um, create pods and micropods and I, I appreciate that, uh, but it's not because uh, there's a standardized one size fits all uh, response to the pandemic here. Um, on the question of the money, uh, New York spends just as much as New Jersey, as Jay said, but spends it very differently. Whereas New Jersey spends its money equitably with more money on the education of uh, low-income students, English learners, and others with special needs. New York spends its money very inequitably, one of the most inequitable states in the country uh, in terms of how it distributes money. Uh, whereas New Jersey put resources into statewide strategies for uh, professional learning and whole school reform. New York has not done that. So there are very big differences in how people spend money and those do matter. Um, the work of Rucker Johnson and Carabo Jackson, a couple of economists who've been looking at the question of does money matter, find that when you put money into schools, particularly focused on low-income students, that you get dramatic increases in graduation rates, in later um, access to employment, in lower poverty rates as adults, uh, and the uh, dimensions are not huge putting 20% more through a school finance reform like New Jersey into the education of low-income kids who've been previously starved for resources. These are districts that were getting half as much as Princeton and New Brunswick and some other places. Um, actually increases graduation rates by about 20 percentage points, which is huge, and uh, closes the poverty gap for those kids as adults. Um, if you just allow uh, long, um, the folks on Long Island to spend more and more money on their kids. You know, some of those districts in New York are up to $50,000 per pupil and continue to starve the cities, you get a very different outcome. So how you spend the money does also matter. Okay. Um, let's go into our second installment now on policing and criminal justice. Um, David, I'm going to start with you on community-based policing. Um, how do you think um, community-based policing would actually work in practice? Um, can you describe 
is it something like what Jane Jacobs described uh, in some of her work where the, um, in the village uh, the woman would be sitting uh, on the stoop or looking outside her open window and then calling 911 when she saw something disturbing on the, on the, uh, on the street? What, is, what actually is community? Can you describe to me what community-based policing actually is? Yeah, uh, it means that the police are reaching out to members of the community, including um, members of the community who work for other agencies and for nonprofit groups, and trying to figure out how, the best way to deliver community safety, partly through police resources and partly through other people's resources. And there, there are a number of different ways you can approach that. And in the 1980s and 1990s, there was a significant debate uh, among advocates of community policing about whether this is something that all members of the department should be working on or whether you should have particular officers whose job it is to make sure that the police is working with the community. And I think that um, the, that, uh, the result of that debate was a pretty strong consensus that the second way worked much better. So what community policing means is that there are officers whose job it is to spend their time talking to people in the community, figuring out um, what the concerns of people in the community are, um, and making sure that the police department is working to address those concerns and not on its own, but we're in partnership. Um, so that means a lot of meetings, it means a lot of outreach, and it means listening and not just uh, talking and, and, and public relations. Now, a couple points. One is, one of the things that I asked in my survey was, should the police be more engaged uh, in, in social services and other use outside of policing? And the answer was no. Um, so how do you see the, the, uh, called the shallowness of the police mandate in the context of that community policing? Yeah, I think it means and, and, uh, that uh, having the police work with other members of the community uh, has to mean sometimes that the police are not the ones that are delivering uh, uh, services. And um, one, um, one problem that community policing had wasn't a problem that police departments created, but it was a, part, a problem of the environment in which they were functioning. The problem is that um, there's a tendency for local governments um, to just let the police deal with stuff instead of funding other agencies and other uh, capability uh, and, 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 and other organizations that can provide those services. So how are we going to deal with people who are in mental distress? Well, we could create uh, a dedicated organization staffed with mental health professionals, but that costs money. So it's cheaper just to tell the police to do it. Similarly, how do you deal with low-level disputes? Cheapest just to have the police deal with it. And too often, I think, community policing fell into the trap of becoming the police uh, being the one-stop shop for everything. Um, and that, that, um, that's not what community policing should be. And I think when I, when I talked about an emerging um, consensus around the overlap between the community uh, policing agenda and the defund agenda, one of the things I have in mind is that there's uh, uh, more clarity now than there was in the 1980s and the 1990s that the police working in partnership with the community should mean, among other things, that there are certain functions that the police don't take on. And I would say that includes uh, mental health response. I, I would agree that it also includes school discipline. 
which was kind of a crazy job uh, to give to police. But again, um, it was part of this idea that we can, you know, we, it's, you know, it's like the police, they can do anything. Let's have them take care of the school discipline problem, too. Let me try, let me try a different angle here. Um, Stanford sociologist Forrest Stewart did it, uh, wrote a book about policing in Los Angeles and how they would work or interact with other social service organizations. So let me give you an example. Um, what do you do when you have um, someone who is being disorderly drunk and urinating on the street? Uh, under the L.A. example, the police officer would say to the drunk, you have two choices. I can take you uh, to Alcoholic Anonymous or I could take you to jail. You decide. And effectively, um, the police officer becomes a um, the strong hand of AA or some other social service function that's it's at some other NGO. Um, and they view themselves as some sort of an interrelationship with other um, non-governmental services. Is that the type of thing that you're talking about that you don't want? You, um, or is that something that you think community-based is? In other words, no, I think how does those NGOs work consistent with the strong arm of the police? Yeah, I think that is part of what community policing is. It, it does sometimes involve the police mm. responding with their coercive powers and serving as an entry point into um, other social programs provided by other public agencies uh, or by NGOs. But I don't think the police uh, should be uh, the only or the default response to situations where somebody calls up because they're upset that somebody who seems drunk is loitering around on the sidewalk and scaring off their customers. And let me let me leave that to examples that you discussed in your talk about 911 calls. Um, we had Peter Moskis on the line a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, 911 calls in general, and that they had as, when he was a uh, before he got his PhD in sociology at Harvard, he worked as a, uh, a young police officer in Baltimore. And he said that he spent his whole day responding to 911 calls. Yep. Um, what he wanted was to have police selectively decide when to, to respond, if at all, to a 911 call. And that he found that in the worst neighborhoods, the 911 calls were just um, continuous. Um, how do you want when? How do you want the 911 if you do hear about a um, let's call it spousal abuse call going on 911? Is that the role for the police, or should the police not respond to the call? Yeah, I think it's a great question, because I think Peter's right uh, that this is uh, it, it's a huge problem, and it's a problem that lots of advocates of community policing talked about in the 1980s and 1990s, the tyranny of chasing 911. And um, people recognized back then that if you want community policing to operate the way that it should, you can't have the police constantly running from one call to another. And uh, the defund movement, I think, has, has given us another reason um, to want to move away from that, which is that often the police are the wrong agency to respond to the situations that, that lead people to call 911. So uh, who decides whether um, a call it warrants a police response or whether it warrants um, a response from another agency? I don't think we know the best. Uh, answers to that yet because we're we're working them out. But there are there are um, there are communities where 911 operators, some departments, sometimes housed elsewhere, do that kind of um, screening work and triage work. 
Um, in, uh, in Eugene, Oregon, for example, um, when somebody calls 911 with a situation of the kind you're describing, they may not wind up having a police officer sent out to them. They may wind up having um, a, a unit from what Eugene calls their cahoot squad go out, which are um, social workers and trained mental health responders. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think it's a tough, it, it, it's um, an, a, 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 another um, issue that the community policing movement never really figured out the answer to is what does partnership really mean? And it's absolutely true that um, in many places when the police talked about partnership, what they really meant was they would make the decisions and they wanted the, police, they wanted the public to go along with them. And that, that can't be what true partnership means. And the police can't be the ones that are making all the decisions about what kinds of um, calls they should be responding to and what kinds of calls other people should be responding to. But they should have a seat at the table when those sorts of policies are hammered out. I want to transition the discussion to bad cops. Um, David, what do you think of uh, Gary's discussion about using the federal courts to discipline bad cops. Um, is, it, is it sufficient? Is it having a significant influence? Um, is, it, is it important? Is it the right way of handling it? What fundamentally is, is, the, is the breakdown there? Okay, so first I, I want to say that I think um, Craig is right, uh, that accountability is a huge piece of what we need to be focusing on now when we're moving forward with transforming police departments. And I also think that this is another thing that the community policing movement of the 80s and 90s can be faulted for not paying enough attention to. So um, I think that improving um, accountability, um, and particularly accountability for um, the improper use of force, does depend uh, to, uh, on greater visibility of, of the disciplinary process, exactly what Craig was talking about. I think um, it does also depend, though, on um, making uh, the courts uh, an available venue for situations where um, the internal disciplinary process uh, proves inadequate, as it will. Uh, um, and um, I think that um, there are limitations to federal lawsuits that are overly restrictive now. I think that. Um, Another part of what I see as uh, an emerging consensus on police reform is an emerging consensus that the doctrine of qualified immunity needs to be either abolished or significantly changed. It's part, uh, part of the uh, Biden-Sanders um, consensus platform calls for addressing the issue of qualified immunity. Um, and I think there's a, an, a growing consensus that includes, by the way, um, many people on, on the right of the political spectrum uh, that uh, we need to change this doctrine, which um, the Supreme Court created. It, it's not in the Constitution. There's no statute that requires it. Um, and it, it's proven uh, too much of an obstacle to holding police officers uh, accountable for misconduct in federal court. All right, let's bring Craig in. Craig, um, what did you think of, of Gary's discussion about using federal courts to uh, undermine and police brutality? 
as question number one. And then can you also comment on David's ideas about a greater use of community-based policing? Sure. Um, I think I think Judge Feinerman was um, describing really descriptively um, what the different avenues or possible avenues for relief in the courts are, um, as opposed to how as opposed to the question of how effective how effective they are at um, at sure. actually inducing change, and. Um, you know, so num number 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 one, and 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 I certainly agree also with, with with David about the emerging consensus about getting rid of the or, or radically changing the affirmative defense qualified immunity. Um, you know, there's one um, still still with respect to accountability in the federal courts and just in the court in the court system more generally. Um, there are still many, 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 all too many folks with meritorious claims who've been abused who will never um, see justice in, in court, sadly. Um, but two, and, and, and so courts and, and having a couple different functions, I mean, one, one in terms of, you know, is this producing the deterrence that we'd like? And two, also, is it providing reparations or compensation for people who are hurt? And I think one, so it's critical that courts do play a role, particularly with respect to number two, and it's a, it's a critically important role that when people are hurt by people by, um, by the state and, and by folks abusing the power of the state and have been badly, badly hurt, they, they should be compensated and you can never make folks bully whole. But we also have seen, and, and Chicago is sadly as good an example as any, that um, there have been in the last 10 years probably more than a half a billion dollars paid out as a result of police abuse in Chicago. Um, and then, but at the same time, let's ask, well, what's the state of police accountability and what's the state of um, police abuse in Chicago? And not so good. Um, so, so I, I don't, so it, it's also, I think, recognizing that um, the monetary liability and liability, particularly of municipalities and in, in many, uh, many jurisdictions around the United States and not all. Um, it's the municipality that's actually picking up the bill as opposed to an individual police officer. So how much that actually deters an individual police officer is in question. And Sir Spinerman also mentioned then there's the criminal side of it, and it's an awfully high bar, um, um, legal bar, to hold a police officer criminally accountable, um, the knowing violation of one's civil rights. And those cases have been bought, brought fairly infrequently, and the rate of success is, is, is not very high for the prosecution. So that said, I, I think that there's a role and there's an ongoing role, and I believe that that is part of a menu of tools for accountability, but it, it, it can't be all of which. With respect to community policing, um, you know, and this is, um, and, and I'm, I'm not in the, I don't know where I fall in the whole defund community policing de um, debate, and is there, is there an emerging consensus and an overlap in where they come together? But, I, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm not against community, community policing at all. Um, I'm not against body cameras um, and some of the things that are typically called for in better training in um, conversations like these. But my fear is that um, the emphasis on those as primary remedies still masks the reality of the problem. And it serves to deny the reality of experience of all too many black and brown folks um, in America. Because it's not if only police and the black community had more 
positive interactions and knew one another better, that everything would all be kumbaya and better. Um, and there's no doubt while better communication, empathy, joint problem solving are good things, the reason why folks are in the streets is less the failure to understand one another. It's because of police abuse. It's because of racism. It's because of dishonesty. It's because of lying. It's because of covering up. It's because of impunity. It's because of our state of mass incarceration. So if we want to address those problems, um, any real solution has to speak to those problems and speak with them in the way that, that, I, that, that, I, that, I, that I, I, I gave some, some, some um, thought to earlier. Completely agree with David that, I mean, among the things that are important, um, and this isn't contradictory, that um, we can all agree that, and it's critically important to reduce the number of negative encounters, just to quit it, to stop arresting, beating, killing so many black people. But a part of where I disagree in terms of increasing the number of encounters, and I'd say this when we think about the white suburbs and affluent areas, there, without a doubt, David's right that, um, that there's plenty of money and resources and per capita resources spent on, in policing and public safety in the suburbs. But I don't think, in, and, and I doubt that anyone on this call is um, saying, hey, what we really need here and for our children is for more of our kids to have more interactions with the police. Um, and, and that will make us all better and that will make us safer. Um, I think just last couple points that I, that I mean, sadly, I think that the choice that a lot of particularly lower lower income black communities um, and brown communities have been sought to face has been an unfair choice, like a choice between um, abusive police or no police. And I think that David and 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 I think that's a tough call. And there'll be people in black communities who be who, who are still like we need greater police police protection. And there are other folks, and we need to listen to other folks too, who are saying we really need to, this. This isn't working. We've seen time and time and again the same problems, same issues, reform, scandal, and back to and and here we are having the same conversations that we need to start thinking about different types different types of alternatives toward public toward the public safety. Um, last point and, and a point of agreement is with respect to community policing, um, I'd, I'd say one of the ways in that it can help and, and, and that could really help and address some of the issues is by a change of mindset. Um, it, it's part of what community policing is designed to teach is teaching police officers to see themselves as a part of the community that they're policing. And that means also humanization um, of the folks and communities they're policing. And it does address things like that thin blue wall line, the us against them, because a big part of it is just, and this goes to Jennifer Everhart's research, is how do police officers look at black and brown kids? And the more see them see black and brown kids as others as threats as them as opposed to as our own children, um, the more we see what we're seeing. Last point is about prioritization of accountability, and that's just um, so when we think about community policing and lots of the ways in which it failed in the, in, in the 80s and 90s, is it was, as David described, in all too many departments, community policing as envisioned by police departments was police departments really setting the agendas and trying to market and actually getting community buy-in for that as opposed to a real partnership. But I don't think it's not just a, a partnership. It's actually recognizing that it's not an equal partnership. And if anything, actually, it's a partnership that must prioritize community and police accountability <laughs> and recognition that we are accountable and a part of the communities that we serve. Um, Craig, as a follow-up, um, as I mentioned in my opening remarks about some of the survey results, uh, one of the aspects of criminal justice reform has been a reduction in sentences for, cr for crimes. 
and I mentioned that um, among this audience, um, only one or two percent wanted to reduce the median sentences that currently exist for uh, most violent crimes. Um, where do you stand on that? And then, uh, and uh, do you think that we should allow for greater judicial discretion in um, sentencing? Yeah, I, I mean, so if you ask um, virtually anyone um, about um, about someone who's killed someone, someone who's raped someone, um, you know, do you think we should be reducing their sentence? Um, you know, in isolation, I think the answer is typically going to be the kind of an, the kind of answers that 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 you saw. And actually, some of the things that were at least mildly surprising, at least to me, about the data um, was that was um, the question about what the average sentence actually is in practice, because so much and, and so if you're saying, well, 10 to 13 years for for a murder, that doesn't sound that doesn't that I mean, shoot, maybe even maybe that we should even be harder on that and harder on crime. Um, but um, you know, I, I, part of part of what we've learned is that locking up more human beings in cages and for greater amounts of time have not made us more safe, that the safest countries um, with the least violence among, have among the lowest incarceration rates. And among the things that we've seen in the U.S. as incarceration rates have begun to fall over the last decade as a result of some of the reforms, um, violent crime has also decreased. We've seen about a 6% drop in the U.S. prison population, and violent crime didn't rise by letting people out. Indeed, it went down. Chicago, where I'm speaking from, the proportion of people sentenced to prison dropped by about 20% last year at the same time that violent crime fell by nearly 10%. And if we're looking at the north, in the northeast of the country, the states where imprisonments went down the most, that's, those are also the areas where violent crime has went down, went down the most. Um, part of, I think, what's not always before us are what are the alternatives because among the things that we also learn is that locking up, um, locking up people, at least in our current prison system, also um, we're ultimately releasing those folks into, into society. And um, what happens in prison has, it often actually makes folks more violent and creates greater risk than actually rethinking about what we do during that time. And so I think it's a more complicated question than, than an on-off survey question really answers because yeah, of course. I don't know if it really puts before folks, um, well, hey, if I knew that, um, that this person, and I'll quote the Brian Stevenson quote that, that, that folks almost said, that we are all greater than, you know, something more than the worst thing that we've ever done, and everyone on this call has done, I'm, I'm sure, something that, we, that we're not proud of, and I think we're all better than that, that, um, you know, if we were looking at not just from perspective of mercy, but um, that actually that I can work with someone who did a really horrible thing, and I've represented some people who've done some really horrible things in life that are much more than that and actually have the power and possibility, and I've seen, um, go on to become incredible contributors, um, productive contributors to society. And I think we do a lot better if we put resources into making folks that. And then the obvious that also goes to, I think, one of David's points, and this goes to redistribution of how we spend our money with respect to public safety, that we can get much, much, much more bang from our buck on the front end by investing like things like great 
thought by Rick to, um, to, to marry also schools and, and policing, but by investing in things like education and mental health services, in jobs, in job creation, that can probably be the single greatest thing that can prevent violence um, when you provide people with hope and alternative and constructive things to do. Okay, yeah, if I could just jump uh, in here, I'm, unless you want to move to something else, I just, I, I wanted to add David, something. go ahead. Yeah, I, uh, um, I think Craig's exactly right that um, if we want to address mass incarceration, we need to think in terms of how we start paying attention to individual human beings and not to thinking about people in the abstract as somebody who's convicted of murder or of rape. Um, I, the, and, and I think uh, part of that is not just giving judges more discretion at sentencing. It's also doing more uh, to, re, to reopen up the back end, which means parole boards and clemency review, which um, has gotten, you know, we, over the last couple decades, we dried up uh, the possibility of parole, we shrunk the possibility of clemency, and, that, and that's another uh, lever that we can pull if we want to do something to address in a serious way uh, scourge of mass incarceration. David, why do you think that me, we moved me, away from judicial discretion? I'm sorry, say that again? Why do you think we moved to, why, why did the public move away from judicial discretion in sentencing? Um, was it because I, they I, saw there, racial differences? I, well, there, I think there was a coalition um, between um, people on the right who thought that sentences were too lenient and people on the left, like uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, um, who was the co-sponsor of the federal sentencing reform um, in the 1980s, who thought uh, that um, guidelines and fixed sentences were a way to address um, arbitrariness and racial disparities in the system. So it turned out that uh, guidelines and fixed sentences did nothing to address uh, racial disparities um, in uh, the federal criminal justice system. In fact, they probably worsened them. Um, but they did do a lot uh, to increase uh, the average sentence served. Um, so I, th I think it was um, in, um, uh, a, th there were good reasons that, that uh, people supported um, uh, these reforms, but th they turned out not to work well. And um, in California, you know, one of the, the, the biggest advocates of a move towards fixed sentences was uh, Governor Jerry Brown, uh, the first Governor Jerry Brown. The second Governor Jerry Brown uh, worked hard to undo the damage that he had done the first time around because he had come to recognize uh, that moving towards determinate sentences in California um, didn't um, do much to resolve racial disparities and did do a lot to help fuel mass incarceration. Let me, uh, uh, this is Rick, let me, uh, again, broaden the frame as we did a little bit with education, because we've been talking a lot about back-end accountability, so to speak, and the, and the role of courts and what courts can do. Uh, but then we also uh, talked, and, and Craig mentioned uh, in particular, uh, just the design of our system as a whole, uh, and that we're at a point now uh, in terms of incarceration rates in the country that increasingly across the political spectrum, people are seen as, as both unsustainable and unsustainable 
undesirable. Uh, so what I'm wondering is, what, how do people think about what the impediments to, to reform have been? Uh, I mean, how is it that we have become uh, such an outlier among all industrialized nations in terms of uh, relying on the criminal justice system to address social problems uh, with respect to which it is obviously uh, the wrong venue? Let me, this is Gary, let me step in here. I, I wanted to go back to what David was just talking about uh, discretion. Um, there, there used to be in the federal system uh, absolute discretion for federal judges. So, for example, if the statutory range for bank robbery was zero to 20 years, uh, in some parts of the country, the average sentence might be 12 years. In other parts of the country, the average might be two years. And that's what led Senator Kennedy uh, and the others to uh, work on the Sentencing Reform Act. And the Sentencing Reform Act uh, put in place a sentencing a commission which established guidelines. And, and the result of the guidelines was this chart, this matrix, where on the x-axis was uh, how bad was your crime, and on the y-axis was your, uh, uh, your criminal history. Uh, and you, whatever box you fell in, that was your sentencing range. So the sentencing range of a, of a bank robbery where you brandished a firearm and threatened death, and your criminal history category was three on a scale of one to six, uh, your guidelines range might be 78 to 97 months. And for the first 15 or so years of the guideline system, uh, that guideline range was pretty much mandatory. And I believe that that did, um, it did reduce the disparities in sentencing across the country. In 2005, the Supreme Court held that that, was, that system was unconstitutional under the Sixth Amendment. So the guidelines became advisory rather than mandatory. So it kind of right now in a hybrid system where the first thing a judge needs to do, a federal judge needs to do in sentencing, is to calculate the guidelines range. Um, and, and, and the second thing is to decide whether the guidelines range is appropriate or not, and consider all kinds of other factors, including the history and characteristics of the defendant, looking at the arc of the defendant's whole life, uh, to determine whether a sentence within that range is appropriate or below the range, or above the range. In terms of, and, and getting to the point that Rick just asked about, about reform, there, there have been um, reform efforts uh, consistently over the past uh, decade or so that have reduced sentences in the federal system, have reduced uh, the minimum sentences for certain uh, kinds of crimes, uh, and have provided fail-safe mechanisms for defendants to seek compassionate release. There was the Fair Sentencing Act back in 2010 that reduced the disparity between uh, crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Uh, there was the First Step Act a couple of years ago uh, that reduced the number of uh, minimum sentences and made it easier to get relief from mandatory minimum sentences and allowed courts uh, to step into the compassionate release system. It may not be where uh, the reformers would like uh, it to be in terms of the system as a whole, but there has been progress made over the past few years. 
Um, I'd like to I'd like to jump in and Rick on your on your broader on your broader question too. Um, and I'm an optimist by nature, and I also agree with Gary that um, we have seen forward progress. Things have gotten gotten better. Um, with respect, also um, we've seen we've seen racial progress. We've seen we've seen civil rights progress. Um, but it's not a straight line. It's nothing like a straight line. And it also goes back to kind of your fundamental question at the beginning in terms of that, you know, we are at this inflection point. Every time that there's been that step forward, and I thought Allison Hobbs talked about this well a couple of weeks ago, um, there's also an equally powerful backlash. Um, you know, reconstruction is followed by. Um, to, to also, and I, and I guess I should avoid being too political, but I, I don't know that it's um, any coincidence that the president that followed Barack Obama is Donald Trump, um, that when we've made progress and when we've made racial progress, there is equally, there's, there's no guarantee that we're going to just keep moving in this forward direction because there are people strongly fighting that. And um, among the things that, you know, and among the impediments and, and barriers, so one is, you know, recognition that it, this isn't going to happen by itself. Um, the progress has always happened because people have stood up, spoke out, and fought to make it happen. Um, but as part of, part of barriers is that, that there are powerful interests that, um, and that, that today that have um, a strong money and political influence, whether it be through reactionary police unions, and sadly, too many of the, I mean, all too many of police unions around this nation are um, reactionary when it comes to accountability, scrutiny, um, any kind of any kind of transparency, and part of the system of denial of the reality of, of police abuse, um, prisons and jails, big business, jobs that jobs that depend upon that. And how many political campaigns um, that have been won or lost, not just on, on the kind of racial dog whistles, but um, on just just that. Let's point out like this horrible, you know, it, it's, it's always politically easier to something bad happens. And also, and same thing for, for then the judge who has to make this decision. When making the decision and if let someone go and then that person does something horrible, Judge is going to take a lot of take a lot of heat for that, and it's not going to make the same headlines. Um, those 30 other people that the judge like that the judge let go um, and did okay. And so politically, it's 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 a tough thing. It's always politically you've tended to vote over time for harsher and harsher sentences, or let's make something else something else a crime. I guess in the macro now we know and we can see. Um, through this broader data, that this hasn't been very successful. Um, it hasn't. It hasn't made it. It hasn't made us very safer. It hasn't made us safer. But I hope when we look back on this moment, and this is a moment in which it is an inflection point. It is a moment in which so many things have stopped, and it's given us the opportunity to ask the questions of what's worked and what's and what's not worked. That then my optimism will bear out, and that we see also the people who are in the streets now join not just the people who've been most impacted, but you know joined and it's beautiful by the white mobs um, from the suburbs, joined by veterans um, who've served in who've served in the military who are stand who are standing up also um, to fight racism and to fight the ways in which. Um, uh, racist systemic aspects of abuse of policing, lack of accountability. Those things give me great, great hope, but we cannot underestimate 
the barriers because there are still very powerful interests who are still fighting and we're seeing also the rise of different white supremacist organizations and rise also of that kind of racist and anti-Semitic violence. Um, we, we can't lose sight of that. It won't just, things don't just naturally move in that forward direction. They move in that forward direction and progress direction with respect to racial progress when we collectively make it so. A uh, quick question for Gary. Gary, in mid-March, I asked you what we're going to do when federal troops or agents come into a state uh, when they're not invited. Um, I know this is actually maybe your district, so you need to tread carefully, but um, the, the current mayor of Chicago has said that uh, she does not uh, wish federal agents to come to Chicago, and the president is considering sending those agents or has already sent agents to Chicago. How do you feel like this, uh, what constitutional issues or other legal issues that would a federal uh, judge have to think about? Uh, yeah, there was a, a, a lawsuit or two in Oregon uh, based on what happened in Portland. Uh, and uh, I think a judge ruled that the state of Oregon, which brought the suit against uh, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, did not have standing. So I guess the first question that the judge would ask in a case like that, which is the first question that a federal judge has to ask in any case, is, is there jurisdiction? And one aspect of jurisdiction is, does the plaintiff have standing? And the judge there uh, said no. I, I do believe that there were other, there was another case filed in, in Oregon which led to an injunction, but I, I'm not overly familiar mm -hmm. with it. Let, let me say, I, there, I, I believe that there's been a lawsuit filed in Chicago. It, it's not in front of me, it's in front of one of my colleagues, so I, I probably uh, shouldn't say anything. But let me do say, let, let me say this. There already are, there, there's federal law enforcement all across the country. Uh, and when the system works well, federal, state, and local law enforcement work together uh, in, in fighting crime. They, are, they have task forces that are devoted to particular problems, whether it's guns or drugs uh, or, or gangs uh, or, or, or matters like that. Um, and hopefully, um, whatever happens in Chicago, uh, when federal uh, uh, federal law enforcement is is brought to Chicago, uh, hopefully it will be within that rubric because it's within that rubric that things uh, work well and the tensions between state and local on the one hand and federal on the other uh, uh, are mitigated or 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 are not there at all. Great. Okay, so this is the point of the show when I go around asking each individual speaker for a note of optimism to end on. Uh, the reason I do it is that historically during the pandemic, we get kind of focused on all the negative, but I want to think positively. So I'm going to start with the education segment. Um, Paul, uh, why don't we start out with you? What do you see out there that we should be optimistic about? I uh, take great heart in the fact that 
when the country has gone through catastrophic periods like this, it has reinvented its higher education system for the better. So if you think about the Civil War, the creation of the Morrell Act, which created flagship, you know, flagship public universities and extended public higher education. If you think about um, World War II and the Depression before it, we created the GI Bill and the community college movement, arguably the democratization of higher education. So my hope is that we don't squander this opportunity. A lot of the forces that have been driving higher education towards pretty long-needed change have been accelerated by the pandemic. And maybe we have to sort of see it broken in a way, to reinvent it in a way that serves Americans uh, better and more effectively. Great. Jay? So I'm optimistic about microschooling because I think it's going to be happening, and I think it will be kind of beautiful to watch people solve their own problems here. Um, so it doesn't really matter what uh, politicians say or what governors declare. Um, they're just going to figure out solutions. Um, and uh, rather than the kind of gloomy estimate from the survey you administered where people thought it would exacerbate inequality, it's possible that microschooling could reduce it. Um, after all, our traditional school structure uh, disproportionately benefits the upper middle class. Um, and it seems to me ironic that we spend half the call talking about institutional racism in policing uh, and the difficulties there, which I think are, are correct and legitimate, uh, but that we don't think about those equally with respect to traditional public schooling. And so alternatives to traditional public schooling might actually be quite beneficial for the purposes of promoting greater equality. And I see microschooling as having the potential for doing that. Great. David? I'm optimistic about the emergence of a better, more clear-eyed uh, form of community policing, more clear-eyed about problems of violence, racism, and misconduct in the police, and about functions that the police maybe shouldn't be carrying out in the first place, and also more clear-eyed about uh, the fact that uh, communities are complicated places and that working uh, on behalf of the community doesn't just mean, for example, working on behalf of business owners who are worried about somebody who seems to be scaring away customers, but working on behalf of whoever that person is that the business owner is concerned about as well. Gary? It's important that the criminal justice system be fair in fact, uh, and also that it be perceived as fair. And at the present moment, more people uh, have the fairness of the criminal justice system top of mind than at any time in recent memory. And that makes positive change uh, far more likely to occur. I'm also optimistic because um, uh, the disparities in the criminal justice system uh, can be remedied through education and educators like Paul and Jane Linda are there uh, focusing on reducing those inequities. And I'm also optimistic because of people like David and Craig uh, who shed light on the inequities, tell us how we need to get better and give us an opportunity to become better. Great, thank you. Uh, Craig? Yeah. It's um, difficult for change to occur unless we can imagine things being different, unless we can begin to imagine things that don't have to be the way they are, that we can do better. So, so much of what makes me optimistic uh, is really present in this conversation, the fact that we're 
having this conversation, the fact that people around the nation, our nation, are having this very same conversation right now about trying to imagine something different and also coming to having an honest reckoning about the reality of things like systemic police abuse that have been a reality for certain segments of our society, but not everyone. So I'm optimistic because I'm seeing people imagine a, 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 a nation and my city where um, people in the role of police are overseen and accountable to communities that have been most impacted, where we're committed to protecting the least among us and the most vulnerable, where we're committed and working toward treating everyone with dignity and respect. And I see that, and I see a world where we invest in our people, everyone, where everyone has that right to the education of the front end of our conversation, a safe place to live, healthy food to eat, place to work, contribute, health care, including mental health, drug, alcohol treatment, human services. Bottom line is, if we can't imagine it, we'll never make it. And I'm truly inspired by the way that particularly young black folk who are really leading the way and leading the way in this conversation, both in forcing us to acknowledge the realities and to imagine something better. Rick Banks, what do you see uh, to be optimistic wow. about? This is, this is a tough crew to follow. So well, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 for better or worse, I'm not sure I'm optimistic, but I am excited. Uh, and I'm excited by the, the sense that we, we do have a recognition in society now, frankly, that in so many ways we're, we're not where we should be, uh, which is to say there's a gap between the realities on the ground and the aspirations of our nation, aspirations that, that most people would embrace. Uh, where we're at right now is that we are in a moment of possibility uh, where people are beginning to uh, uh, imagine uh, different roads ahead uh, and how we might close some of the uh, gaps and address some of the inequities uh, that continue to plague our society. Uh, but the important point, I think, for all of us to remember, and I'm echoing Craig's point here, is that change won't happen by itself. Uh, it's a a process in which we all have to play a role. Uh, democracy is not a spectator sport. Uh, and while we may look to government to provide many of the things we, we, we think people need, we can't rely only on government. Uh, we all have roles to play uh, in our professional lives and in our personal lives as well. So uh, again, Larry, thank you for convening this conversation. I think that this is truly part of the uh, mechanism or the, or the, the, this is the avenue of change that we're on, uh, and we shouldn't lose sight of how significant these sorts of conversations can be. Great. Um, I do want to say that uh, this ends this week's edition. Next week, we're going to be discussing uh, the end of the liberal international order, which will be focused at its core of a debate between John Mearsheimer and John Eikenberry about whether or not uh, we should have a realistic uh, foreign policy or not. And then on August 9th, the following uh, Sunday at 3 o'clock Eastern, uh, Rick Banks will be joining us again, uh, this time on Silicon Valley and its effects. Um, if you want to invite other guests, friends, and family, I sent you a link, uh, and you can register them up and so we can expand the family of listeners. And with that, that ends this week's call. Thank you very much to our speakers for all of their thoughts and our listeners for their participation. Thank you. Good night, and uh, you can turn off. The, you can turn this off. Bye bye. Thank you all. Bye bye.